0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening. This is Kelly Stefano and uh, today I'm pleased to have with me Shauna Mayer, author of Oh, You Pretty Things.
1: Shauna, um, thank you so much for joining me today. My absolute pleasure, my friend. <laughs> Happy to be here. Um,
0: uh, I am a huge fan of this of this book, uh, and um, uh, I'm just going to just dive right into my questions for you. Um, one of the things that, that struck me about this book is that there is so much truth in the flaws of these characters, and while we writers know in the abstract that we have to write pure truth and whether fiction or nonfiction but sometimes that's easier said than done and so one of the questions i was dying to ask you is how do you make yourself achieve this truth in your writing and and how do you know and how do you self correct if you catch yourself being untrue on
1: the page um that's a great question and one of the things that I do or at least I have done in the work that I've you know that I've been been knocking around to, d- to date is I'm writing really close to the bone so although oh you pretty things is absolutely a work of fiction it is very it's based on my years and years as a celebrity personal assistant in Hollywood Hollywood. So while there are giant flights of fancy throughout the book that don't, that did not ever personally happen to me, um, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the dialogue, a, a lot of the, a lot of the situation, you know, the, the, the sense of place, all of that is, um, you know, is ingrained in my memory. So it's, it, which, which, I mean, memory doesn't always mean truth. And especially for me, my husband makes a horrible fun of me you know where his is like you you are you are absolutely a storyteller because that is not the way it happened but you know <laughs> left to my own devices I tend to write I tend to write really close to the bone so that's um that's regarding the the you know the actual truth although in this work of fiction and I I sort of consider consider myself a memoirist first because my mm-hmm. I didn't start writing until I was in my I don't know, relatively early early 40s, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but uh, the first book that I worked on was a me- memoir for about six years, and uh, I set that aside to write OU Pretty Things, which, again, potentially we'll discuss later. And so that truth, memoir truth, in terms of places, in terms of place, is, is I think, an easier... An easier first draft, but in long-winded answer to your question, it often involves multiple, multiple drafts. I try not to judge anything that I write, whether it's memoir or fiction, as truth or not truth in a first draft. Uh, but right. as I as I evolve through, and I'm a multiple drafter, you know, I don't. Some people who I don't understand their brain chemistry at all, write a single perfect page, and then another, and then another, and then another. Um, I write, write gibberish and go off in all sorts of directions, and then come back and you know leave it alone for a while, and then come back and say, like, okay, what's working for me here and what isn't? And usually, I mean, it, or at least it's been my experience in my relatively short career as, as a writer that if not the second or third draft it really starts to rise to the top you know like you can just sort of see it like like as if it were sort of like a like a dreamscape where you know like certain words just pop up and you look at them and you're like yeah that's actually not true at least that's that's been my experience and again because this work is fiction it's i'm much more concerned i'm not i'm not concerned about truth in in, in terms of place and, and, and situation at all. But I am very concerned about emotional truth always in all of my right. work. So it usually right. it usually shakes out several drafts in it, for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I'm the same way. I do not understand writers who, you know, they might generate only 50 or 100 words in a day's sitting, but they're kind of perfect, and they don't have to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And i I kind of like you. I mean, I just get it down. I just need to get something, you know, down, and it may be embarrassing.
1: Um, but then I go back. Oh my God. And everything it, I and, write is always it. profoundly embarrassing to me. <laughs> I mean, even when it's out the door, like I, you know, when I see people, and I've never seen anyone in the wild holding all you pretty things, but at readings or, you know, wherever, you know, I I look at someone like looking down into my book and I'm just like, wait, can I just see that? Like, do you have a pen? Because there's some things that I thought about afterward that I just need to, you know, and, and I'm kind of cribbing that for Mary Carr, who still says at least, or the last time that I heard her speak that, Every time she goes into a bookstore, she wants to take a sharpie to to Liar's Club and just be like, "Nope, nope, nope," you know. And I think you know you, you're only you're only working with your at your best capacity in any given moment. And then then hopefully not necessarily, but hopefully you grow past that. And then you look back and that's potentially going to get into our shame conversation, which we may or may not have, but you tipped me too. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh,
0: you know, I, I, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, uh, about your, your dialogue, but I think you've, you've sort of already answered that, that question, but um, like so many other readers have said, I couldn't put, this book down, and for me, it was largely because the dialogue is so real and quick, with the perfectly measured beats of movement. And I was just going to ask you how you learned to write dialogue so well, but it sa- it sounds like well, this is you lived this dialogue.
1: Um, I did, and I didn't. I mean, some. Some of it is verbatim, not of course. Again, it's fiction. I need to stress that because you know, right. <laughs> because it's it's because it is very close to the bone. And um, while I drew from dialogue that I heard all over the place when I was working as an assistant, uh, uh, much of it was not directed at me. But I think I think most writers are. I, I, well, I don't know what most writers are, but I think most of the writers that I know are sponges in one way or another. And yeah. when I started reading, and I, and I started reading at a very early age, and we had a very odd mix of books on, on our bookshelf. Like we had, uh, and I'm dating myself, but this sort of collection of, of classics that came, you know, like you paid for one a month and they came in this, you know, in, in identically bound, you know, like faux leather, sort of thing a full leather sort of situation which was great and then we also had the Encyclopedia Britannica which was really one of my you know like early reading sources and also things that were way beyond my purview at you know three or four or five because my my mother taught me to read extremely early and and it was things like Harold Robbins and Jacqueline Suzanne, and you know, <laughs> later for me, Judith Crane or Sydney Sheldon was another one. Like in my youth, because my mom read, you know, my, well, my mom read everything but pop boilers. And and while I wasn't aware of it at the time, and probably I picked up some, you know, not the best habits from, you know, from some of the like from some of those of the moment. Genre books. Um, you just, ab- I, I just absorbed it. You know, like I, I kind of absorbed how a page goes. I think. I mean, I don't have a a definitive answer for that, but that's my best my best guess. And um, going forward, I'm I'm an introvert, which, which that word is so often misunderstood. I I go out and socialize, and you know seem like the life of the party, particularly if i've had a few glasses of wine, but uh, it it absolutely drains me, and depending on how long the function is whether whether it's you know just meeting a friend or or taking myself to a coffee shop to write, which i don't do a lot of because I find it cacophonous and 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 not conducive to me being able to sort of sink into what i'm doing but um I eavesdrop i mean. I'm a, I, and I'm always making notes when, when you know, whether it's like walking past a bus stop or in line at my very fancy grocery store across the street in my very, very fancy Houston neighborhood, which I loathe, by the way, but that's a different story, um, and possibly the subject of my new book. Um, you know, people say amazing things in public places, and... You know, I'm always just sort of making notes about that. And on little little scraps of paper, often which come to nothing. Uh, But, I mean, listening, I think, is listening and actually really hearing. I think one of the mistakes that I made early on, um, because I'd read some, you know, some classics, is... The formality of language can be in today in today's book world. I think can be very. I mean, unless unless you do it incredibly well, can be uh, very uh, uh, debilitating. That's not the right word, but but to to a snappy dialogue, you know. Um, when I write dialogue, I write it however the fuck I want to. But then when I'm going through edits, I'll have a friend or. I'll read I'll read both parts out loud to myself and li- listen for, you know, the clunkers because often the things in our head that we want to convey on the page don't don't read like, you know, to to the reader like the way people actually talk. Um Les Plesco, who unfortunately has no, is no longer on the planet, which is a great loss, but um, I took a, a class with him at UCLA, and and it was it was only I think the second class I'd ever taken and he, at UCLA Extension, and he was ruthless with contractions. Like, in what situation do you say, I have not been to the dentist in you know three years? You don't. You say I haven't. Right. You know. So right. so just those little things, um, that for me now, now I catch from. Reading lines, if you will, you know, with with a with another writer friend, or, or just reading it aloud, and you catch the you know the phraseology, like what what looks beautiful on the page, doesn't necessarily tra- translate to, a uh, you know, a swift dialogue for for a reader to absorb, and I'm always I'm always patently aware of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. Well. Well, thank you.
1: Um, that's, uh, that's. I mean, what do you do? That's helpful. Like, um, you know, it, the.
0: I I guess they do the same. I guess they do the same thing. Um, I, put down, you know, kind of whatever the fuck I want in the first right. draft, and then, I, go back and I and I read it. Out loud and see how it sounds, but I never really know if it rings true until I've had another writer friend read it and and kind of tell me yeah this this works or well, this right. this sounds this sounds phony um, i guess I mean I guess that's a common issue, but um sure. i just I guess you just get too close. To something, um, you know, for me, whether it's dialogue or or, or any piece of writing, um, it, you know, you get too close to it, and you just you just don't even know yeah. anymore after massaging it and kneading it and everything else is, you know, whether it rings true or or false. So,
1: agreed. Um, I absolutely agree with that, and I think for me in the beginning. Like I worked I, I started writing in, I don't know, 2006, I think, the beginning of 2006. So I'm a latecomer, I'm 53. you know I didn't start writing until I was 43, uh, or sorry, my math might be off on that, really bad at math. Uh, but generally. And I didn't um, when I the first class that I took was a, was a memoir class. That I didn't have the, you know, the prerequisites for, and I just took fifty pages out of my journal and spent the three weeks before the deadline was due just taking out all the fucks and the and the winery and the all of that, um, and God bless Samantha Dunn, who was my first mentor, who took me anyway, <laughs> and um, she was responsible for. Actually, teaching me, you know, some some very basic writer, creative writer skills, which, you know, I dropped out of high school in the first two weeks of tenth grade. So while I have an inherent sense about how to create a sentence, um, I could I couldn't diagram a sentence to save my life. But I think when you're an yeah. avid avid reader from a very early age. It just becomes ingrained in you. And and again, like I said, it it takes drafts, both for the dialogue and for the truth that we were talking about earlier, where, I mean, I do this thing that is only a horrible thing if I don't end up taking it out, which has never, ever happened in a piece to the best of my knowledge. But sometimes I'll read someone else's piece and I'll read a line that's so beautiful or so compelling to me that I will put it into my work, which I would never take, you know, another person's, you know, like little darling line, unless they were like, I give you this, I bequeath this to you. Uh-huh. Right. You know, um, right. But it's sort of a scaffolding and, and then there's other stuff that goes along with that. Once I've created that, that as a, you know, as a, uh, Lynch or a benchmark Lynch I'm not sure what the right word is there, but for, for that, but, even if in my, you know, like lowbrow felonious, although I I must point out here that I've never been arrested for a felony or, well, let's just leave it at that. Um, uh, It pops up. I mean, to me, you can't not see it, which is why I have, you know, judgy. um, I have judgy problems with, you know some of the some of the plagiarists that have popped up over the past several years. You know who said like, "Oh, I just I just didn't know." And everyone's different, but if if something isn't true or, or I've cribbed it from somewhere else to scaffold me into a new place, by the third by the second or third draft, it's it's like a beacon. It's like in a you know in a different color and in twenty four percent in twenty four point type on my twelve point piece of paper, um, I, I, and I feel like, I feel like if you, if you pay, you know, when you're paying attention, like, that kind of happens for most of us, at least most of the, most of the writers that I know, you know, except, I mean, there are a couple who do not, clearly, but I will not be naming those names. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, well, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic, I mean, I, um, I, uh, I'll, I'll share a story with you. Like I've been, I've been working on a memoir and I've been struggling with a title. And uh, uh, one day I was just, uh, you know, out and about and it just hit me like a ton of bricks, the The perfect title for my book. And that title was, It Chooses You. And I, was just so pleased with myself and I thought oh my god this is fucking brilliant this is the perfect title for this story and then the day wore on I I started thinking huh this I don't know this doesn't sound right um and then I I come home and sitting right on my stack of books next to my writing table is Miranda July's book It Chooses You and it's just kind of terrifying because I, you know, for at least half a day, I thought that I had come up with that all on my own. And right. obviously, right. you know, it was just sitting there etched in my memory. So stuff like that sort right. of, sort of mortifies me. Um,
1: it's super right. mortifying. Um, and I worry about it, I, I, I worry about it less with what I'm writing now and, and less with with oh, you pretty things but when i was working on the memoir um there are a couple of writers whose work has been so seminal to me and i you know i was always in the back of my head was the anxiety of am i am am i emulating them or you know like am i is it an homage or am i just like you know following like a weird template that i've created for myself which is not none of which are desirable you know I mean right, perhaps right, right. Yeah, for a scaffolding you know um but not yeah. not for that like I when I first started writing Oh You Pretty Things um which there's a story behind that which we may or may not want to talk about but um when I started writing Are You Pretty Things uh in the back of my mind was one of my favorite writers ever Mona Simpson and she wrote a book called Anywhere But Here which I love you know, that book oh my God, I love that book so much. And it was, oh, here, let me silence my, I don't know if you're hearing that, but, like, my computer is making beepity noises. Okay, okay. better. Um, <laughs> that book was seminal to me in so many ways. And uh, before I actually got the nerve up to take a writing class, I was writing, you know, like, little vignettes in, in my I was journaling and writing little vignettes and I when I would look back at them I would be like mm, I've basically just rewritten you know, some some of Mona Simpson's pages not intentionally where I also think there's value sometimes in sort of creating like a muscle memory with your hand of if there's a work that you deeply adore writing it out on a piece of paper just to sort of feel how the you know how it flows, how the words go. Like I, I'm tactile in that way. Um, but that was not what I was doing. And then I would freak myself out going like, wait, I'm, am I plagiarizing Mona Simpson? Which I wasn't, but, but I always have a concern about work that I deeply love and not, not trying to hew too closely to it because I relate to it so deeply. And Mona mm-hmm. Simpson was the yeah. first one. And there are a couple of others. Um, yeah. But again, I, th- I feel like that was when I was a baby, baby, baby writer. I feel like as I was working through the memoir, which is still under my, you know, metaphorical bed, actually where it is, is on, you know, a laptop that barely runs anymore. And my cobbler daughter lifestyle has still not migrated it to my new computer, which gives me a little, I mean, it's in the cloud somewhere, but whatever. Um. When I moved to oh, OU Pretty Things, that was a super deliberate decision uh, based in part on potentially saving my marriage because my husband and I have always been double income. And after my first class at, at UCLA, Sam, the you know indefatigable Sam Dunn, said, honey, you're a writer. You need to be applying for things, which she was the honestly the first person in my life who who encouraged me in that way and all or yeah, perhaps she, perhaps not but she was the first person in my life who encouraged me in that way when i was in a place to hear it so yeah. she's just so if i'd known them what i, I know her. now about publishing and and all of that i probably would have just said thanks and went back to you know journaling but but I didn't, so I just blustered my way out into the literary world. Um, which was great, except, you know, I had this very foolish conversation after after working with Sam for about a year, where I said to my husband, you know, like, I I think I can I think I can finish this memoir in a year. Like, and I want to quit my job. And he was like, Okay, like we can handle that. And then like, ha 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 ha. I mean I know some people can but the the time between the class I took with Sam and the time that I decided to set that book aside and and write something different was several years and and I and so many I was so fortunate to have many fellowships and residencies but the some of the fellowships like you know I had brilliant writers who had completely disparate opinions about what this book should or shouldn't be. And that was very confusing to me. And at some point I just had to say like, okay, I can't fix this with with the consciousness that I currently hold. And I'm going to set it aside and write something else. So I went way off topic on that one, but um, I think it speaks to potentially other things that we want to talk about. Like, you know, how do you, how do you figure out your writer or, you know, how does that go?
0: I want to go back to something you said a few moments ago about uh, dropping out of high school. Your bio on the back cover begins by describing yourself as a high school dropout. And I'd like you to tell me if you can a little bit about that journey of dropping out of high school to becoming sure. an accomplished writer. I mean, it's a it's a pretty unique story, right?
1: I mean, I I don't know, honestly. I mean, I, I know that there are several, you know, there's sort of that MFA slash NYC thing, although I don't think that that's particularly, like New York isn't particularly the place where you have to, you know, go to be a writer. But um, for me, uh, well, for starters, I grew up with an unmedicated schizophrenic mother who often self-medicated with alcohol and you know whatever the pills were of the 60s i was born in 1963 and for all of her flaws her desire for me to have a top shelf education was key and we were we were never on welfare because my mother wouldn't she was that that was offensive to her, uh, or food stamps, but we she she was very charismatic uh, and and very beautiful, but not able, but also schizophrenic. so you know she could she could get a job with no problem. She couldn't hold a job very well. Uh, that said. That wasn't really the reason necessarily that we moved, but I, I, I never went to a school for more than the longest, the longest time I ever went to school was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, which was to a very fancy, uh, academy in, in, uh, Los Angeles that they now now call the Brentwood School, but at the time it was called Brentwood Academy, and I was there on a, on a full ride, and I was basically at all of my schools on a full ride because once upon a time I actually possessed a level of intelligence that I've just ruined with, you know, teenage drug and alcohol abuse and, and other, (laughs) other situations. But, um, I was the child who, I mean, I lived, so I lived in Los Angeles all over the West side. I mean, within not, we didn't, we didn't move far, but we moved every single year and Usually, we were either, like, I don't know if if you've ever seen the movie The Slums of Beverly Hills, but we were either outrunning a landlord or uh, my mother would just, you know, in her schizophrenic state, which, by the way, again, undiagnosed, but it was definitely a thing. Uh, Right. We would move every, at least once a year from one shitty studio apartment. Occasionally, we had, you know, like, when we were living large, we had... One bedroom apartments, but usually not with furniture in them, like a bed, but not much else. Um, so we had this very. She was super overprotective when I was young, and then became completely unprotective when I hit puberty. But um, I went to very academically oriented schools for most for most of my you know most of my childhood, and again you know and fancy ones on. On a scholarship. Uh, that said, we, you know, we always found some reason that that school wasn't working, and I had to go. So I had extreme school anxiety as a child, and um, I always started. We we never had it together for me to actually start on the first day of school, and I had a brief stint in Catholic school in fourth, fifth, and half of sixth grade. Uh, I moved from one to, I mean, I never, I I just, you know, I always started late. I never had the right clothes. I never, you know, cliques were formed early. Uh, my, my school years were miserable, which, you know, many very famous writers have said like, great, you've got enough material for the rest of your life. (laughs) You know, but, um, although I was, although I was extremely strong academically uh, I was I was trauma you know I mean there was a lot of dark trauma in, in my life as a, as a child and I didn't make friends easily and I was easily bullied and so I was potentially as eager as my mother to switch from school to school and um, by the time I got to the end of ninth grade in At the Brentwood School, the that summer between ninth and tenth grade is when I discovered boys and alcohol, and it was 1973, I think. Don't quote me, Um, but it was the relatively early 70s. Maybe no, sorry, I'm sorry. It was 1976, and uh, you know when I came back from that summer, the dean very quickly saw a huge uh, change in my in my demeanor, and it was suggested to me that perhaps I, perhaps another school would work better for me, probably because I was having, you know, like 16 year- old boys pick me up in their beater camaros, and we were smoking weed in the you know, like down the street, which the Redwood school happens to reside in a very uh, tony residential neighborhood. But that was kind of the end of school for me. I mean, yeah. I I had other things to do, you know. Um, so, so let me
0: and, let me let me uh, uh, let me let me interrupt yeah. you and and just and ask you something. You had, you had said yeah. in a previous interview that you oh, no. you struggle with shame <laughs> about your lack of oh, traditional education that you had that you had dropped out but here but here's my question so has has writing a good well-acclaimed successful book eradicated that shame because you know I, I you know i i don't know but i mean you know, in a way it would be like you know you're flipping the bird to
1: everybody you know You'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> I mean I don't you mentioned in you know in our in our brief exchanges prior that it's a subject that you're super interested in, as am I um, My experience was almost the opposite, which I'm still not sure I can articulate properly for you because. I I still haven't quite figured out and, you know, I'm paying a few different therapists, a lot of money to, you know, help me parse that. So I don't spend the rest of my life in that space. But, um, I thought of course that for many, I mean, even though I knew, because I've been in therapy an awfully long time, um, even though I knew that that outside stuff doesn't fix things, what I didn't Mm -hmm. know is I knew that for sure. Like, Writing a best-selling book doesn't, doesn't, you know, it doesn't change the way you feel about your body. It doesn't change the way you feel about your, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't change a lot of things. Or for me, and, and also for many very successful writers whom I've had the privilege to speak to in that intimate way over the years. Uh, but what I didn't expect. So I didn't expect, although I have to admit, a tiny part of me also, while I, while I knew better, a tiny part of me also said, but, but maybe I'll be different, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe it, that won't happen for me. Maybe when my book comes out, I will actually feel like I'm a, you know, bona fide member of the literary community, whatever. Um, not only did that not happen, I think it, uh, it kind of sidelined me, I mean, and it could have coincided with, I mean, it did coincide with some other issues in my life. Health issues, mental health issues, other things, but selling the book was i mean there were moments of you know incredulous joy, but in general it just it turns out i'm as as bad and i'm as, I'm as shameful and stressed out as being a, at being a success as I am as a failure well that's um Sorry, I wish I had you know, a better answer. <laughs> I mean. you no, know, I mean it's just it's just um,
0: you know it's it's it, it it makes me sad to to hear that that when like when we can't revel in our own successes. I mean I don't know. It sounds like you and I are similar in the sense that when I. Get rejected, or when I fail, or uh, or, or, or or whatever, on a, on a large scale or a small scale, and I've done plenty of both. Um, but I, I, it hits me so hard, and I take it mm-hmm. so hard, and I beat myself up, and then I have a win, and um, I, I succeed, um, I, you know. Again, large or small, and I just brush it off. It's like, oh yeah, well, okay, yeah. whatever. Next, yep. next thing, yep. next thing. Hundred percent. It's, it's sad. It's a, it's a terrible way to live. And I'm, you know, I'm working on myself and, you know, doing the therapy and reading the books and, um, you know, trying to engage in the spiritual practice to stop that. But it's just kind of a lifelong habit, and it's so hard to break and um. Uh. I think I'm just going to be a, a work in process until the day I die on that. I agree, but it's really, uh, it's, it, it's I agree. for both
1: of us. Yeah. Well, and I th- um, think, but I think that, that the more you talk about it in a public forum, um, wherever that might be, I think that you will find, or I've found that, that, that's kind of the way writers feel in general. You know, I know, you know, NBA award-winning writers who then get a rejection from a colony and think that their life is over. You know, I mean, I think, I think that's just sort of how we're wired and that's a sweeping generalization, but based on, you know, many, 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 many conversations, some of them drunken, uh, which, you know, in Vito Veritas, uh, although you don't have to be in Vino to be veritas, uh, it doesn't go away. And that's been, that's been sort of soothing to me in some way, but also depressing in, an, in another. And I struggle with, you know, I struggle with, uh, like, not mental illness, but I struggle with, with uh, you know, like, my, my brain chemistry. And I'd never taken antidepressants Except when I quit smoking, I took Wellbutrin many, many years ago. But several doctors had had recommended them because of you know it, not not my not my therapists. My therapists were always like talk therapy, honey. I mean, you know, based on the trauma in your life, you need you know like you're always going to need to be working on that. And uh, I feel like if you're if you're not pedaling uphill, you know, if you're coasting, there's only one way to go, and that's downhill. And I've had, I've had a few therapists in my life, two of whom, one one including the one I have now, who who are fantastic. But I've also had several sort of mediocre therapists, and I feel like a mediocre or bad therapist is worse than no therapist at all. Um, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, I feel could super not agree strongly more about that. Yeah, yeah. And I also yeah. feel like, and no offense to, I have many friends who are therapists and writers and also many therapist friends, but um, it, the profession tends to attract people who have deep-seated issues of their own and, you know, like, well, I want to learn this stuff about me, but I'm also going to look at a way to make a living. I mean, I feel like... And this is completely kind of off topic. Off topic, but if you feel like you have issues that you need to deal with, you should treat the therapeutic process and finding a therapist like going on Match.com. Like potentially, you're going to have to date, date in quotes, uh, you know, half a dozen people more. Who knows before you find the person that you know that gels with what, with what your issues are, are and has something substantial to bring to the table. And I've had, yeah, I've had a lot yeah. of shitty therapists and a few good ones. And I'm super grateful for the, you know, for the good ones and, you know, still occasionally harboring resentments at the shitty ones where it's like, wait, I paid you, you know, I tried you for two months and I paid you X amount of money and I really, I could be advising you. Wow. That's so yeah. egoy, But but, but, but it's true, you know?
0: You know, I mean, no, I
1: mean, I I
0: have lived... been there. Yeah. 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 So okay. And... So, Shauna, we're running out of we're running out of time. But um, mm-hmm. I just I want to um, conclude by asking um, my new uh, uh, after. Uh, last november's election uh favorite question Mm -hmm. it's a question i've stolen from the new york times uh sunday book review interviews and it's a question as i've noted in a couple of other podcasts that i always thought was kind of silly but since last november it now feels kind of critical to me um and I yeah, just have like to does. end by you, you ask, answering the question, if you could require our new president to read one book other than, oh, you pretty things, what would it be?
1: Okay, well, first of all, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get like deeply potty-mouthed and political about our current admin- administration, <laughs> but um, from what I understand, through his own, through 45's own tweets, is that he doesn't read and that his right. favorite book is his own ghost written book, The Art of the Deal, and also a copy of Mein Kampf and possibly the Bible, although I'm not sure I'm buying it. Um, so, assuming that this is a man who spends, you know, four to six hours a day trolling cable TV and other news media. Media for neg- you know negative or positive mentions of him, like, you know, like dude, he's not going to read a book. So, although I, I've also become addicted to, not addicted, but but excited to see, I, and I've seen this this uh, you know this question posed in very in various forums. And one of the books that co- that continuously comes up, consistently comes up, is Tonahi's Coates Between the World and Me, which is. I just started reading it, but it's an uh, if I if unless it switches up halfway, it's an epistolary book, a letter to you know a black man's letter to his son about you know life in the United States. Um, but I don't think that Donald Trump would ever read that book, so I'm going to go into the not way back machine, but just go back a little and suggest a couple of graphic memoirs for him, either Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Because I feel like without, I feel like the Hitler comparison is, well, I used to feel that it was inappropriate. And now I'm like, mm, not so sh- sure with the, you know, yeah. thank you rallies and the, you know, all of that. And that's a beautiful graphic novel also. And I'm going to just, I'm going to say this name so, all of it so damn wrong because I don't know her. And, um, but Persepolis, am I saying that right? Or Persepolis? Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, which is the uh, another graphic novel of, you know, of a, of a child in Iran, and I think anything that would draw him, that could possibly draw him toward realizing the universality of all of us would be a step in the right direction, But but, I mean, my end statement to that is, I think, instead we need to you know like make a cartoon on Nickelodeon for him to watch from one of them from <laughs> you know from a book yeah. because yeah he's not he's not doing that you know
0: yeah 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 so um well Shauna, what's yours you
1: wait that, no tell me uh, what yours is oh
0: god um uh it, you know actually i don't I don't have an answer uh to that, and I think um uh, Get on it, girl. It's, it's any 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 <laughs> book. Read read a book. Start with any
1: book. Right. Um, yeah, a book. Uh,
0: start start with start with a children's book. Uh start with uh uh Dr. Seuss and and
1: Right. And, I was thinking about that the, too. Because I'm such there, a fan so. of Dr. Seuss, you know, like and I can't think of the one that, you know, I haven't read Seuss in so long, but I'm sure there's one because they all contained messages that would, you know, that would potentially move his, well, move his immutable, unmovable heart in some direction. But now that I've put Um, myself on, on, you know, know, that audit list um, (laughs) by making those statements, (laughs) which I'm fine with. yeah, well, yeah, uh, we, we all are. So,
0: okay, well, with that, yep. Sean, i will we'll wrap it up. And I want to thank you so much for for joining me and sharing yourself um, with all of our listeners so fully. And um, I hope I get to talk to you again soon. Have a good Thank one. you so much, Karen. Okay, bye. Sure, bye.